It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. Anthony Hamlet has resigned as Pittsburgh Public Schools Superintendent effective October 1st after violating the State Ethics Act regarding travel expenses, failure to disclose financial interests, and accepting money for speeches. So what's next for leadership in the school district? James Fogarty is executive director of A-Plus Schools, a nonprofit advocating for equity and improvement in Pittsburgh schools. James, welcome to the Confluence. Thanks, Kevin. Glad to be here. James, uh, your initial reaction to Hamlet's resignation? I mean, it, it's never it's never an easy thing um, to have a, a superintendent resign the second day of school. Um, it's a, it's clearly a sad day for for Pittsburgh public schools and for our communities. Um, but I think you know, give Dr. Hamlet credit. There was obviously a lot swirling around, and you know, the families that we speak with were really just concerned about how they were going to get their kids to school, whether schools were going to stay open. Um, and those, you know, the, these other questions around ethics and whatnot, you know, um, certainly didn't make that any, you know, kind of focus on those issues any easier. According to the district solicitor, Ira Weiss, Hamlet is receiving a $400,000 severance package due to state law and his contract. His contract was renewed in August of last year, would have paid him $236,000 this year. James, the ethics investigation began about two years ago. During that time, and before the findings were released, there were other issues, some that you've alluded to, the district's COVID response, a delay of the return to school amid transportation problems. Do you think the reaction to the ethics report would have been as strong without these other problems? You know, I, it's, it's not for me to say. That's really um, something that I hope board members will speak to um, in the coming days. But, um, you know, it. The board, you know, the way that our schools work require a board and a superintendent working together um, to effectuate change and improvement for our kids. And when, um, you know, the board and the superintendent aren't on the same page, especially as it relates to things like opening schools, um, et cetera, then I think at that point, you know, it becomes a lot really hard for any superintendent um, to do their job. And, you know, it was clear based on the statements that were made that, you know, that there was, you know, it, it was it was a time to part uh, based on sort of the board and, and district um, and the superintendent's positions. So I, you know, I, I don't I don't know um, what was in their mind. I was not in their conversations, but um, clearly, you know, there was a, a difference and a divergence. And, and, you know, at that point, I think from what we saw, Dr. Hamlet decided to resign. You told our education reporter, Sarah Schneider, quote, we as a community need to come together and try to fix whatever has been damaged, especially trust, end quote. So where does repairing that trust begin? I mean, I think it starts with listening to parents and students about what they need right now. Um, the more we can solve the problems of today, right? Um, this morning I was up at Brashear. We're trying to help with these navigation ambassadors and folks are, you know, if you're able to help out in the morning or in the afternoon to guide kids into school, please do. But I was in Brashear kind of helping move traffic along. Um, and, you know, the teachers there, the principal, they're all trying their best to make this work. We've got hundreds of families dropping kids off. Um, you know, I think what it is, is, you know, that's a problem. We're working on solving it. Uh, the drop-off times have gotten faster. 
even in the last week. There's still there, the folks from central office were up there today looking at signage and other things they could do. It's that kind of work day in, day out, looking at the times when kids are getting to school, when they're getting home, how do we improve those things? That's going to be what it takes. And to the to the families out there that are that are carrying a lot of burden, I want to say thank you. So many parents are, um, you know, lifting some weight here to make sure that our schools are open and making sure our kids are getting safely to schools. So I think there's a lot that um, our community is doing and trying to do. And I think that's where um, we've got to come together and, and work with the district on, on solving some problems and letting them know where we see problems, too. James, the board has to select an interim superintendent in the next couple of weeks. What are some critical qualities the board should look for as they hire Hamlet's permanent replacement? You know, I think we talked about this a few years back when we were when uh, the search for Dr. Hamlet was happening. One, I think you really need someone um, who can garner the trust of your building leaders, who knows how to support, supervise, and coach our principals so that they can do better work. I think the second thing is someone who's a great communicator, who can talk to families about what's going on, um, be honest about where the shortcomings are, and, and really listen to what the needs are. And then third, I think you need someone who's got some uh, chops around just operations, right? We've got to make sure that the kind of nuts and bolts of schooling are being handled and handled well. Um, and so the next leader really should have some ability to move the dial in a, in a large district with multiple interests that they have to navigate, right? Um, I think those qualities of a leader um, would go a long way to moving the district forward. And, that, and that's not to say that there weren't some of those qualities in the current administration, but what it is to say is that we need to continue to double down on getting better at getting better every day. Um, and I think that that will require a leader who knows our people, knows our kids, knows our schools, knows our families and communities well, and is willing to listen and do as much as they can to change things for the better. James Fogarty is the executive director of A-plus Schools. James, as always, thanks so much for your time. Hey, Kevin, thank you for having me. Take care. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. The state is looking to address how the criminal justice system interacts and supports people with autism spectrum disorder. This includes diagnostic services for those who are already in the state's correctional system. Lou Randall is the executive director of Autism Connection of Pennsylvania. She participated in some of the panels and discussions about this issue throughout the state. Lou, welcome back to The Confluence. Hey, Kevin, thank you very much for having me. Lou, do you think this focus on those with autism spectrum disorder in the criminal justice system is overdue? Right. I think it's long overdue. Uh, I think we've been supporting people with autism in various situations where they get caught up in the justice system for decades. And um, we just haven't paid enough attention as a society and as a community to support people in, in the first place so that they don't wind up having any kind of like police interaction to start with. Are there biases against people who experience autism? Well, I think there are definitely common misunderstandings. I mean, the person with autism has a brain. It's got 
extra nerve cells. So there's extra thoughts going on. So it slows down some people's response to questions or commands. I, I always talk about it like a traffic jam where it's harder for them to maybe find the words to say the word loud enough to respond to somebody in society. And just being a little bit different in society uh, can draw attention and have 911 calls and things go downhill pretty rapidly after that. Because of that traffic jam, as you call it, difficulty in responding to commands as in maybe a police officer? Correct. Yes. I mean, if I was autistic and I were out in the street and someone started to talk to me rapidly or or loudly, I might just shut down because my brain can't process all that. I might be relatively aware. I might be in trouble, which would cause me to fight, flee, or freeze. I think flee is probably the most common or or freeze and not be able to respond. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't look right to someone in authority. What support currently exists for people with autism who enter the criminal justice system? Honestly, very little. And this is nationwide. And I look at systems of places like county jails. And I'll give you one example. Here's a question. If I were to be processed right now at at a jail, here's the question for me. The signs of developmental disability parenthesis, slow speech, appearance, or history, close parenthesis. And the checkmark box says none observed. So that's if that's your whole screening tool across the country, we don't even recognize that we're incarcerating people with autism in the first place. If they are incarcerated and they've been diagnosed and it's recognized, are there any resources inside the county jails or the state prisons? I mean, there are some places that we would call like a behavior clinic or something like that in the county jails, possibly, but people do fall prey to other people who are incarcerated or people in charge who may not have great intent. And I know in Pennsylvania right now, they are looking at processing people at reception with screening tools and evaluations where they have more time to do that. And they are setting up a separate autism pod in the state correctional system right now, which is the last place you want to land. But it is an improvement, I think, over just uh, ignoring the problem and acting like, you know, these people don't exist. I mean, these are human beings, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters that run into issues of not being supported in the community in the first place. And when they wind up incarcerated, it's just really difficult to to help them and get them out. Can those who are incarcerated get a diagnosis while they're imprisoned? I'd say that's pretty rare. I I think even on the outside, when we're trying to help adults who seek a diagnosis get that, there's still about a four to six month waiting list for that. Uh, And especially troubling is um, when we run into people of color who have had a terrible history with any kind of systems of care in the first place. So they're undiagnosed or they're wrongly diagnosed and can carry a label that just doesn't really apply to them. And um, they're definitely overrepresented in our jails and prisons anyway. How can traits of someone with autism have adverse reactions in the court system itself? That's a really good question. Uh, People with autism, I always presume competence and presume understanding. So we're not presuming legal competence. We're presuming that they understand what's happening. But their slow response time or the fact that there's a piece of the brain that actually controls your facial muscles that in a lot of autistic people is very, very small. So people can misread that as, and I've read this in lots of reports, person shows lack of remorse. Well, if you can't move your facial muscles very well, which think about autism makes it hard to communicate, make words, make them loud enough, all of that kind of thing, they can look just in a different way. And people make a lot of judgments on that. And that can have a lifelong consequence that's very negative. Will you share a story or experience you've had maybe assisting someone who is autistic or has a loved one with autism who's entered into the criminal justice system? 
so I'm at the Autism Connection of Pennsylvania, affiliated inside Achieva, and um, we've got a bunch of advocates here. But personally, I support about 20 families and people who are autistic. There's a young man who was incarcerated, served a little bit of time, had 72 hours to register himself when he moved out and didn't understand that. He's got a learning disability. He's autistic. He was, I think, 19. Um, he was put back in jail for just not changing his address from that jail to his mom's house where they went to pick him up. And he served an additional nine months just because he didn't understand what was written and what he was supposed to do. So these sort of technicalities happen. I've got another one who was caught up in an online ad sting who had five felony charges, spent $8,000 in 15 months. Um, his IQ is 59. He's autistic, has a learning disability. Um, probably didn't even understand what he was reading while he was texting back and forth with uh, the sting operation, which had no victim. And that just cost him so much of his life, so much of his family's stress. And right now his main trauma is he thinks about being shackled to the floor while he was being interrogated. And that night, you know, when the officer calls his parents, because they knew he was, he was disabled, they could tell by talking with him, it shouldn't have taken 15 months to get that cleared up. So where should reform start, in your opinion? Well, I think that reform starts actually in the systems that were supposed to be supporting people from the Department of Health and Office of Developmental Programs in Pennsylvania to increase community supports for people so that they're not outside, you know, living under the 10th Street Bridge or um, having other kind of issues in the community. I think we need to do better hiring of police and really work on slowing down interactions and giving them more uh, tools to help support people. We need to work on helping officers have discretion in charging because they do. They can. They have a lot of power in deciding if they're going to charge someone or not. Um, then we look through jail screening and diversion programs and providing funding for providers who want to serve people with justice involvement who have intellectual or um, autism disabilities so that we have a true diversion program. So the systems as a whole, the, the care system through diversion and then aftercare needs to recognize that these people are functional, comprehensive adults that, that need supports, not punishment for their disability. What, if any, progress has been made to make the courts and the justice system more supportive? We've got right now working with pit researchers, our local doctors. My board members are very active. Um, attorneys, uh, Judge Kimberly Clark has been very uh, aware of this locally, and certain people at Department of Corrections. So um, together, we need to just keep on beating that drum that we are incarcerating people with developmental disabilities. We need to admit that we are, and then we need to build the systems so that we can stop doing that. Lou Randall is the Executive Director of Autism Connection of Pennsylvania. Lou, thanks so much for your time. Hey, thank you very much. We appreciate it. It's The Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. We've heard over and over again there's undeniable proof of the climate is warming. But how are science teachers conveying this to their students? How are concepts such as climate change addressed in education standards? The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is updating its own science education standards set to be implemented in 2024. Jeff Remington is a STEM teacher in Lebanon County, a national STEM ambassador, and he is on the content and steering committees to update such standards. Jeff, welcome to the Confluence. Thank you very much. Appreciate this. Jeff, when was the last time Pennsylvania science education standards were updated? Uh, the last time they were legislatively uh, adopted uh, as standards was 2002, when those standards were first created. Mm -hmm. Are these updates typically a big deal? 
Yep, typically it's part of the Chapter 4 regulatory process, so it makes sure that there's plenty of public input, uh, plenty of transparency, and uh, plenty of opportunity for stakeholders to get involved. Mm -hmm. Many, many of the 500 school districts in the Commonwealth have STEM programs, but overall, how would you assess Pennsylvania in its standards for teaching STEM? Well, it depends on how you look at that. If you look at that as specifically siloed math standards, siloed science standards, that's one way to approach it. But to me, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, is really a philosophy that is a workforce development philosophy. When we are in the real world, in real jobs, we don't silo um, subject areas or expertise out. Our past standards had more of that flair to them where they were siloed. These new science, technology, engineering, environment, and ecology standards will have more of that STEM integrated feel, that more workforce development feel, uh, that feel for preparing for the 21st century post-pandemic. Once recommendations are made on updating the standards, who gives the final okay for adoption? State Board of Education. Now, does the Board of Education, the Department of Education itself, then check on districts to see if they are implementing those standards? Standards are the law. Standards can have an accountability, which the science ones do, through assessments. Currently, we have the Pennsylvania PSSAs for science, and we also have the Pennsylvania Keystones for biology. Mm -hmm. So how will your committees, how will they decide what information about climate change or other issues in science are important enough to include in the new standards? Uh, back in early 2020, we had 14 stakeholder sessions around the state at various locations around the state geographically. We even had, once the pandemic hit, we had online sessions. Anybody in the state, business, industry, whatever your viewpoint is, you could have input. We were looking for things like what hopes, concerns, and questions do you have about the updated Pennsylvania standards? What's your vision? What are the strengths and challenges of Pennsylvania's current standards? Um, what knowledge, skills, and dispositions should be included in those update standards? So we had those 14 stakeholder sessions. From there, um, we had a lot of data to look at. Uh, and then we had another public input, like I mentioned before, where committees were formed and anybody could apply to that committee. So if you wanted to have more input, you could join a committee. Uh, we just finished up in June a public comment period where um, once samples of the standards were presented publicly, the public had a full month to comment on that. All of those public comment data points have been put into this. In addition, um, our committees have looked at what's the best practices out there and best practices from some standards that are out there by national organizations, such as the North American Association for Environmental Education, K-12 Framework for Science Education, which is from the National Academies of Science, the Next Generation Science Standards. We've looked at a whole boatload of standards from all different states um, in, in the United States to see what have they done with those standards. And we've certainly looked at our past standards and we've certainly looked at what is vital and important for the economy and for the environmental health and for the future of our Commonwealth. Climate change is a big looming threat, but as a kid, the concept could be really scary and distressing. 
how would you as a teacher make this topic approachable and less scary for kids? Well, really, the, the whole flavor of what these new standards are going to be, they're going to be solution-oriented. They're going to be problem-solving. They really have engineering as their backbone. Uh, these standards are going to help create uh, a workforce in an economy that is problem-solving focused. So to me, that's not intimidating when you teach kids about how to solve problems and they have that mindset. Uh, to me, I feel like bring on a challenge, bring on some kind of challenge and let's apply the concepts of what we've learned to solve that problem. How do you envision this being taught differently at different grade levels, elementary versus high school, for example? A big difference you're going to see is it is going to be taught at the elementary level. Really, the 2002 standards had very little uh, implementation in elementary schools simply because um, there's been a greater priority on math and language arts. These standards are different from 2002. 2002 was more what I would call sit and get, which would be students are just learning facts and things like that. I'm going to read some of the verbs from the 2002 standards. Verbs like students will recognize, students will describe, students will explain. Um, what you're going to see in these standards is a lot more doing. Students will propose solutions. Students will analyze data to create a model to propose a solution. So these standards are going to have things called performance expectations where students will have to physically prove that they understand the concepts and that they are engineering a solution. Jeff Remington is a STEM teacher in Lebanon County and is on the content and steering committees to update Pennsylvania's science education standards. Jeff, thanks for your time. Thank you. And for today, that is the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Next time, the legislature is drawing the 17 congressional districts in Pennsylvania, but using the new census data, citizens have already created a map that keeps most counties and communities intact. You can find more from today's and past episodes of The Confluence online at wesa.fm slash confluence and through your favorite podcast app. Thanks to our team, Rebecca Reese, Laura Satsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news.